Milkshake, host of the sequel cast. This episode, we're going to be kicking off a uh, set of episodes focused on the various Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. And uh, this first one, we're going to talk about the live action Ninja Turtles movie from uh, 1990. Before we go into that, uh, I had the opportunity to do a interview with uh, director Steve Barron, who directed that first live action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. And uh, if you don't recognize the name Steve Barron, he did a the uh, Coneheads movie, and he also directed such miniseries as Arabian Nights and Merlin for uh, TV. His latest project is Treasure Island for the Sci-Fi Channel. It's going to stick uh, close to the book. It's going to have a dark, gritty tone, and it's going to star Eddie Izzard as Long John Silver. So let's take a listen as director Steve Barron talks about his work on the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles live-action movie. I was doing some research into your background, and I was wondering how much more complicated were the Ninja Turtles uh, costumes and puppetry to direct than some of what you had to work with on the Jim Henson Storyteller TV show? Um, yeah, they were much more advanced. More, I mean, it was it was the same team. I think it was a couple of years later. It was the same team, so, you know, the skill level, Kevin Clash... Um, Oh, I can't remember all the names. I've got a terrible memory, unfortunately, but John Stevenson, I think, was in charge of the Creature Shop of both those projects. We just had, uh, obviously, a bigger budget, really, for, even though we didn't have a very big budget for for the movie. So they they got involved in some new technology. It was mainly to do with the servers in the faces, and the servos would be able to move much faster so they could move into uh, the time of, you know, real time of human speak, and before that, they just didn't have any servers that that would that would drive the machinery quick enough, and uh, so that was their big challenge. Was in pre production on Ninja Turtles was how can these mouths move quick enough for human speak or for for actor speech? You know, there was a whole issue of radio control because uh, we hadn't before that. Um, I don't think we'd done much radio control with the storyteller where. We're standing away from it, and obviously there's no wires going in. And uh, that made, meant that they could be free of wires and walk around and, and perform, although that did cause some problems. We had a number of interference issues with uh, the airport at Wilmington, Carolina, where there was a, a sort of a, an Air Force base. And every time a, a plane land, one of the Ninja Turtles' faces would go berserk. <laughs> and go into 96 expressions and then freeze in a jam, in a sad-looking, scary <laughs> jam. And then, obviously, we'd have to reboot and then uh, I hope another plane wasn't landing. But uh, that was all, at the time, the most advanced technology in animatronics. And with the animatronics, that controlled the uh, movement of the eyes as well. Yeah, that was, um, again, about the servos. I forget, I think there was like 17 functions. Smile, blink, 
eye left to you know eye movement left to right um, jaw lip curl you know all those were were part of the seventeen functions and uh, and that all had to uh, that all had to be coordinated with uh, one puppeteer per per Ninja Turtle who you know they rehearsed quite a bit on it obviously and uh, and and worked with the performer inside the suit. Did the turtle suits make it challenging as far as directing fight scenes go? I'm trying to figure out some sort of choreography where you have these big outfits and they have to fight uh, like people in ninja outfits. Yeah, we had a different set of people doing the fights. Uh, they were from Hong Kong, and they and they wore quite different suits where the the shells weren't filled with the hydraulics that the uh, the the acting turtles had. Um, so they were just uh, they were much lighter. And they could, you know, leap around. They were more like pads for them. And so these guys who came from Hong Kong were absolutely brilliant, actually. And they, they obviously knew all the ninja skills, nunchucks and sai and all that stuff. But they, uh, they were able to, uh, you know, really perform. And they would do very dangerous stunts. They just kind of, you know, drop 15 feet onto a wooden floor and things like that. So they had fixed faces, and you know, in those days, we didn't have the technology to go in and make, you know, plant a face on top of a face. Nowadays, you'd have those suits, and then you'd add a face on the front. Um, but uh, in those days, it was uh, you just had to cut it quick enough to get away with it, or have the turtle turned away to uh, to to get around the fact we didn't have the expression. Uh, when you got the job directing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film. Were you familiar with the Ninja Turtles at all as a property? I didn't, and it kind of came in the order of I was sent the comic book by Anthony Minghella, who was a famous director who uh, had uh, had been approached by Golden Harvest to do a different project, that he his own play to do it as a movie. And in amongst them chatting about that, he was shown this, this Ninja Turtles comic book and... Uh, it was just before the cartoon series came out on TV and before the toys came out, but it was a uh, comic comic book. And he sent it to me. He thought I was suited to it, thought I'd done st- get something as mad as that. At the time, it was something really so wacky, no one knew what to think of it. Um, so I then fami- familiarized myself with the comic books and uh, really liked the spirit and the ideas. And, and, I, and the deciding factor for me was I'd never seen anything like it. And, you know, I really wanted to make films that I'd never seen before. And uh, so that was it. So then I sort of took it on and uh, worked with the writer, or found a writer, actually, to to work with and started pulling the uh, comic books apart and uh, piecing together the the story from from the comic books. So it wasn't really in any way connected with, uh, you know, the cartoon at the time. Then the cartoon came out and... uh, and obviously was a built slowly, but became really big hit with the kids and everything as we were going into pre-production. Do you remember anything from working with Sam Rockwell in the movie? Yeah, I remember he was really great. Uh, I thought him instantly. Lynn Kressel told me about him. Said there's a new young kid in New York who she thought you know was really excellent, and uh, so we tested him, and he was just you know perfect. So. I remember thinking his instincts were really, really great, and uh, that you know we all thought he would go, go, go far, and uh, he has. He's amazing. 
Did you ever have any interest in doing any of the live-action uh, sequels that came out later? I had the option to do number two. And to be honest, after one, you know, we had a bit of a clash of creative clash during one about the darkness of it. And they they thought it was all too uh, too dark for kids. You know, they obviously got some stick from some, uh, I think, from some parents uh, committees and things about the film being a bit dark and uh, uh, and they wanted to make two lighter and more colorful and, and it just wasn't where I was going to go with it and also having done one to be honest except for a payday there's no real point you know you might as well move on and just get on to something else and especially if you're you know you're not allowed to explore it further I felt it was going backwards to uh, to do something that was more cheesy and colorful and happy Go lucky. Uh, what is your favorite pizza topping? Pepperoni. American Heart. <laughs> pizza Express. Which you don't have in America, I don't think. No. But I hate it. They brought out all these special ones at the time for kids. Disgusting Smarties or M&Ms on marshmallows. All under the name of Ninja Turtles. It was That was all absolutely gross. I felt guilty about that for years. Uh, what projects are you currently working on? I'm working on Treasure Island for uh, television, a two-part miniseries for television, the Sci-Fi Channel, and um, that's primarily it. We just shot that in uh, Ireland and Puerto Rico, and just heading on to um, uh, Interpost. So, with the Treasure Island, that has Eddie Izzard as Long John Silver. Yeah. Is it gonna Is it gonna be a more comedic take or fairly um, straightforward? Actually, it's it's pretty dramatic it's not really we're not going for comedy it's it's got its funny moments and uh eddie's got that little twinkle in his eye that gives it the naughtiness of his humor but we're really going for a you know a dramatic epic telling of it well, great that sounds pretty exciting uh thank you very much for your time for coming on the sequel cast good uh, good luck with it good luck with your sequel cast Hello and welcome to the sequel cast. This is a podcast where we talk about movies in a franchise one movie at a time. Uh, we're starting a new set of movies with this uh, next uh, set of episodes. We are looking at the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. And this episode we're looking at the very first one simply called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It was released in uh, 1990, directed by Steve Barron and um, written by... Todd Langan and Bobby Herbeck based on the comics by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. Uh, with me is Thrasher. Cowabunga dudes. BJ. Perestroika. <laughs> and uh, special guest Mikey from Mikey's TMNT.com website, a website that uh, celebrates more than 10 years of pure turtle power. Mikey, welcome to the sequel cast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, not a problem. Uh, so I think we'll start talking to you, Mikey, a bit about your exposure to uh, to Ninja Turtles. What was the very first time you ever saw Ninja Turtles? And not this live-action movie necessarily, but it might be the cartoon or the comic. Yeah, um, that would have to be... Um, I think that was when I was in the third grade, uh, which was about 1988, I believe. Um I was actually, it was after school one day, I was actually uh, out on the playground with some of my friends, and uh, 
one of my one of my good friends, his name's Lawrence Grant. He uh, he came out onto the playground and said, "Hey guys, hey guys, we have to go home immediately." I was like, "What's what's going on?" And he's like, "There's this show on TV with a talking brain. It's so cool." <laughs> so yeah, we uh, we ran over to my house and uh, turned on the TV, and there it was uh, this talking brain and and uh, the turtles, you know doing their thing and i was just mesmerized it was it was great yeah for me uh my first exposure to uh ninja turtles i was living overseas in argentina at the time and i had friends that had the uh the first ninja turtles game on the nintendo in the uh nintendo entertainment system mm-hmm. and um i guess through that somehow i found out about the cartoon but for Two or three years, all I had to go on was a videotape with two episodes of the Ninja Turtles show. Mm-hmm. I think it was part of the first four episodes, I think. One was with the neutrinos, and uh, one was probably the origin story. So I didn't have a lot to go on, but uh, so I was first exposed to it. Uh, Thrasher? Uh, I uh, uh, was uh, first exposed to Teenage Mutant Ninja-, Ninja Turtles through the animated series, it had started coming on, um, at, at least in our area, uh, in syndication, like uh, just as Ghostbusters, I think, was getting brought over to NBC. And I remember, I remember feeling my loyalties divided between whether I was going to be a hardcore Ghostbuster or hardcore Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan. And then I realized I could be both. But yeah, I, uh, I was very much into the Ninja Turtles uh, by the end of its first, uh, first season. And uh, BJ? I think my origins really come from uh, the toys. I think uh, first time I saw them was somebody had one of the toys, and then I thought, oh, what's that? Oh, and we kind of play with them, and I remember uh, eventually getting into the cartoon and all myself. Very cool. Uh, so, Mikey, what made you decide to start your Mikey's TMNT page to begin with? Because it's been around for a while. Uh, yeah. Um, I actually, uh, I had, I think it was... Around 1996, um, I was a sophomore in high school, and I think that's when the next Mutation TV show came on. Uh. And uh, yeah, and you know, I was like, you know, I was a big fan of the Ninja Turtles. I should really start kind of getting all of my old stuff together and seeing if I can, you know, kind of come up with a list of my collection and. Uh, at the time, I was uh, I was also attending uh, part time. I was attending college classes um, that I, I I guess I was getting dual credit for uh, just it, it was it was like an elective, and uh, so I was learning how to build websites. And of course, this was nineteen ninety six, ninety seven, and websites were just basically a really horribly tacky uh, tiled background mm. with, uh, oh, yeah. you know, with like Comic Sans font and, uh, you know, flashing little GIF animations. But, you know, I was like, this is going to be awesome. I'm just going to put up all all my uh, comics and, and my toys and stuff. So I started putting that together, and I kind of I just left it there on my on my hard drive. Actually, it wasn't even on my hard drive. It was on a on a SciQuest disc. 
<laughs> which uh, that was even before zip disks. It was between zip disks and um, and floppy disks. So that was a long time ago. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just basically lived on one of those disks for a while. And um, after I graduated high school, I um, kind of didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So I, uh, I decided to move up to Austin, uh, Austin, Texas, with my aunt and uncle. And uh, while I was there, I was kind of, I don't know, I had, I had, I'm hesitant to say that I was in a depression, but I think I was uh, not, it, it wasn't anything horrible. It's not like I had a horrible life or anything. Um, I, I was just kind of like at a loss of what I should do because, you know, I was in, I didn't have high school anymore. I didn't, I wasn't in college with the rest of my friends. So um, I, I would just kind of spend my days by myself sitting around uh, my aunt and uncle's house. And so I decided to go some, through some of my boxes of stuff, and I found the original uh, Ninja Turtles movie. And I decided to uh, pop it in the VCR and watch it because I hadn't seen it for probably about 10 years. And, uh, and you know... Watching it, I was just enthralled. I was, I was like, "This is amazing!" It's, you know, it's really withstood the test of time. It, it hasn't really aged badly at all, and it's, it's a really cool movie. And it was kind of poignant too. It, 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 you know, touched on family and and um, and friendships and all that. And so it kind of inspired me to to have uh, have a change in my life. So. I was, you know, that was kind of like the return of the Ninja Turtles into my life. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to search online and see if I can find anything related to the Ninja Turtles. And sure enough, I found uh, the Ninja, Turtle, Ninja Turtles mailing list, the NTML, and, uh, and the TMNT list, which is, I, I think that's still going on. Um, and those were e-groups at the time and, uh, and just seeing that there were different people online who, who had fan fiction and, you know, artwork scanned and put up there on the, on the internet, it kind of inspired me to put my stuff on the internet. And so I decided to move back home and, uh, got got my computer connected and and uh put everything up online it was actually hosted on angel fire <laughs> oh i remember that <laughs> yeah so that's that's the humble beginnings of mikey's tmnt pretty cool uh, one last thing and then we'll move into talking about the uh, first teenage mutant ninja turtles film you mentioned you're going to some sort of ninja turtles event in the next few weeks what is that oh um actually it it's kind of difficult to uh to say because I had to actually sign a confidentiality agreement. Oh, okay. Well, never mind. But, oh, dang. but uh yeah, it it's um it's just something that, that Nickelodeon uh, wanted to put together for, for some fans just to to see the progress of 
of the show. So, um, so Nickelodeon <laughs> did they they bought the rights outright to Ninja Turtles? Yeah, from Peter yeah. Laird. Yeah, yeah, Peter Laird uh, bought out the the rights from Kevin Eastman. Well, he he bought out Kevin's half of the rights uh, back in um, can't remember what year it was. Uh, I believe two thousand one, two thousand two, around there. Um, and then this past year, uh, Peter Peter Laird sold his. Well, the the entire franchise to or the entire property to um, to Viacom. And when is that new series coming out? Um, I believe uh, later on this year, if not early next year. Okay. Uh, I, I'm not I'm not too sure on the details. Uh, they're they're supposed to fill us in on a lot of stuff, I guess. Um, yeah, there's a teaser out for that now, but it's very brief. You just yeah like five seconds of footage of the Ninja Turtles. Yeah, and actually, um, the Wall Street Journal actually uh, released a um, a story about it too, but it, it didn't go into into any detail. But I do believe that it it said. 2011 or 2012 i i can't remember i it's been a couple of days since i read it and i've slept since then <laughs> <laughs> okay well let's uh get into talking about the teenage mutant ninja turtles live action movie the first one from travel uh, back with us to 1990 yeah 1990 um so when I first saw this movie, I was really excited to see it. I had to have seen the first one uh, on videotape. And when I was little at the time, I was really disappointed in it. I thought it was boring. I wanted to take a nap during the sequences where they're at the uh, uh, farmhouse. Mm-hmm. I guess I was expecting something closer in tone to the cartoon, which you kind of got with the later movies. But, uh, I mean, watching it recently, I, I, I like it a lot more now that I'm older. But... um. Thrasher, when was the first time you saw uh, this oh, film? Oh, we saw it uh, in the theaters, I believe, on, if I remember correctly, on the opening weekend. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I, I At the time, I guess I about half agreed with you. Uh, I, and as a kid, I did, I did feel that it did get really boring around the, the scenes with the farmhouse. However, everything outside of that was just pulse-poundingly amazing. I was just... It was so great to see these characters move around in 3D. And even though I didn't really appreciate it at the time, uh, I, I came to realize how how great it was that they that they didn't try to make it like the animated series, and that it did have a a, a more a more serious tone. But the characters' fun personalities were still intact. Uh, BJ, I actually saw it in a uh, second run theater for um, not too long after I you know, had left Prime Theaters. Uh, I was visiting my aunt in Lafayette at the time, and was like, "Oh, hey, she wanted to take us to a movie." Like, oh, it's the Ninja Turtles! Yeah. <laughs> why? Why were you a five-year-old girl, uh, BJ? <laughs> uh, you know, I've gone through some strange things in my life. <laughs> and uh, Mikey? Uh, yeah, I, I think I saw it um, probably opening weekend. Also, um, yeah, we uh, it, it was. My my sisters and and me we took off down to the to the mall theater and saw it there, 
And uh, I was just gobsmacked. I was just there staring at it with my eyes wide open through the whole thing. I had, yeah, it was heaven for me. <laughs> God, so where do, there's so much going on with this movie. I'm trying to think. Uh, well, before, before we begin. get into the, the story, sure. can I just praise the turtle special effects? Yeah, yeah, it was done by the Jim Henson uh, yeah, shop. Yeah, the, the Jim Henson creature shop made all of the Ninja Turtles, and they looked awesome. I mean, up, up until this point, to the best of my knowledge, the only major release film that had a full-body anthropomorphic suit kind of char- as a ca- character, as a main character, was Howard the Duck. And anyone who's seen Howard the Duck... That's not a very successful special effect. It's not all that expressive. I mean, it always looks like a guy in a, a tiny guy in a suit. As opposed to these Ninja Turtles, they if, if Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles actually existed in the real world, they would look exactly like they do in this movie. Yeah. And it's great. Their faces are completely expressive. Their, their mouths don't just flop open. Their lips actually sync up with what's being said. It is so amazing to see the Turtles in action. Yeah, in yep. that little uh, interview before the show, I got to speak uh, briefly to the director, uh, Steve Barron, of this movie. And he was mentioning he got the job to direct Ninja Turtles because he had worked with the Jim Henson uh, Creature Shop directing some episodes of the show uh, Jim Henson's The Storyteller. Ooh. And, yeah. uh, That's actually a great series. If if you haven't seen it, it's on, on Netflix. Um, you You won't be disappointed. It's great. And so from that, he had some exposure uh, working with these kind of creatures. But And you can listen to the interview at the top of the show. But he just mentions it took so many puppeteers to do so many different parts. Because you have a man in the suit, but then the, the head specifically has so many electronics to get the mouth, to get the eyes to move, to get it to smile, to get it to frown. So it, it really is something that holds up. And like had they... Uh, tried to do something like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where they put cartoon turtles in a live-action setting. That that might have been interesting, but that wouldn't have been... It helps make the movie a lot more believable, that they're a combination of a, a guy in a suit and uh, animatronics. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that we're lacking in, in modern ones, and I guess we'll get that when we get to you know part four of this, is that you you get some a real realism of actually being there... Hey, look! There really is a turtle on screen, as opposed to an animated uh, character. Yeah, they have weight. You know, they have gravity. They, they, they're in your face. You know, and that it, it makes them more real. I mean, you can see their bruises and their their sweat glistening. You know, it's it just makes them really real. And that's something that that Jim Henson has always done with. I mean. It's funny because you think of something like Muppets Take Manhattan and you're watching a, a frog walking down the street and nobody even gives a second glance to it. And, you know, it, it's funny because you believe his characters are real. Yeah, I mean, uh, and this movie does show a lot of restraint, which I admire. You know, you don't see the Ninja Turtles in their complete uh, full in a complete lawn shot of their full body until maybe five minutes into the movie. It doesn't start with Ninja Turtles dancing right away. You have yeah, a... it really knew how to build up a nice, slow reveal of these characters. It gave their, their appearance much more weight. You know, I actually see a lot of parallels from uh, in 
the original Ninja Turtles movie from the original Ghostbusters movie. The setups seem similar where they, they don't go right into, ah, hey, look, there's these guys hunting down ghosts. We don't go right into the Ninja Turtles kicking butt. We really get a good setup of the story. And it's also nice that, um, like, half this movie isn't a big origin story. They get into the origin a little bit, but they manage to, you know, have these Ninja Turtles in the sewer and say, they're here, deal with it. You know, you yeah, when the origin story does show up, it's, it, it, it comes and goes very quickly and gives us what little information we need. So how would you say the plot of this begins, Thrasher? Uh, I would say the plot of it begins with crime on the rise in New York City. And you have to understand, this is pre-Disney-fied New York City. This was, this was back when you know, Times Square was known almost more for the, the peep shows than necessarily for Broadway. I mean, the whole movie has a nice griminess about it with the with the lighting. A lot of the lighting and the sets are very dark. It makes it, you know, sort of tricky to see things sometimes. It's not as blown out with the bright lights and smiling faces as some other stuff might be. It's a, it's a real old school, almost like taxi driver-ish New York. <laughs> Especially when you start getting into some of the scenes in the Foot Clan headquarters, you would not have kids doing some of the things they're doing in there in modern movies. But uh, back to the beginning, April O'Neil, a uh, news reporter, gets attacked by the uh, Foot Clan, a gang of uh, ninjas that work for the evil Shredder, even though you don't know that at the time. And she gets attacked, but then she gets saved by uh, Raphael. But you don't see it's Raphael. You just get quick shots of his weapon, the Psy, and uh, you might see his his hand for a second. But it's a neat beginning, it has some action, and it's quick, it gets you to the point. Well, you get to see a Ninja Turtle actually using their stealth ninja skills to, to take out some ne'er-do-wells. And also, like you said, it takes its time. You don't, um, the Turtles don't take April to their uh, lair immediately. No, yeah, crazy. it creates a kind of sense of mystery. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step over you, Mikey. No, that's that's no problem. I was going to say the same thing. It, there's definitely a sense of build-up there. Um, you know... The the scene that everyone is familiar with is the scene of the turtle looking out of the manhole. And, uh, I mean, all you see is a bandana and a pair of eyes, really. But, you know, that's that's kind of the quintessential Ninja Turtles shot. Yeah. Um, I think that was their, <clears throat> excuse me, their, their original uh, movie poster shows all four of them. Uh, peeking out from beneath the manhole, and that's, you know, that's just the, I don't know, to me that that's that says Ninja Turtles right there. Yeah, it's a neat little shot there, and uh, aside from, uh, we talked about the look of the Ninja Turtles earlier, and I, I do want to touch on, I also like how Splinter looks in this movie. Like a real rat? Yeah, like oh. a re- Yeah, like a real rat, yeah. Yeah, there's so many hairs on that costume that uh, it's really just that detail just really comes through. And we well, you know the, the puppetry on Splinter. Uh, it it really it makes it makes the Splinter character just as as believable as Yoda in uh, in Empire Strikes Back. He, he really does live and breathe as a character through that puppetry. Yeah, and he's actually a very complex marionette. Um, and hand puppet, uh, and who'd have thought that 
our beloved Master Splinter is actually also the beloved Elmo <laughs> from Sesame. Yeah. Is that the same voice or the same puppeteer? Yeah, same same voice. Same oh wow! Puppeteer. Yeah, uh, that's Kevin Clash. Um, huh. Who they're they're actually uh, they just released a, a documentary on his uh, life as a puppeteer uh, at Sundance this year. Yeah, speaking of the Ninja Turtles comic, uh, a few years ago I had the opportunity to go to a, a science fiction museum in Seattle, Washington. And on display, they had the Michelangelo Ninja Turtle costume, I think. Oh, wow. And uh, seeing that in person, I think, is pretty neat. As a museum, it's not the greatest museum in the world, but um, it was a real thrill getting to see that costume and seeing, oh, it's about the same height as I am. And uh, it's different because nobody's inside it, and it's not dancing around making expressions, but that's a pretty cool thing. I don't know if that's still at that museum or not. I I, I believe it is because... um... One of my friends went out there recently, and he took a photo of it, posted it on his Tumblr, um, and yeah, I mean it's it's just cool to see that it's still still there, that it still exists because that foam latex just deteriorates over time. Oh yeah, it does not hold up well. Yeah, with the uh, Ninja Turtles, it's interesting to see the. Uh the voices they use in this movie, you know, it's not always consistent between these movies or even between the movies and the cartoons, but, uh, the most famous of the voice actors is you got Corey Feldman as Donatello. Mm -hmm. But uh, one thing I didn't realize until researching this film is, uh, Brian Tochi did Leonardo, but he was also the, um, the Asian character in the revenge of the nerds movies. Yeah. (laughs) Among other things. And then you have Robbie Rist as Michelangelo and uh, John Pice, I don't know how to pronounce that, as Raphael. But the guy that did Raphael's voice was the same guy that was in the suit. But that was the only case for that character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, um, Robbie Rist, uh, I think he's that annoying cousin from the Brady Bunch. Cousin Oliver? Yeah, I think he's Cousin Oliver. I'm, uh, I'm going to double check this. Yes, but if, he was Cousin he Oliver is, in the final season of The Brady Bunch. Oh my gosh, he was <laughs> Cousin Oliver. <laughs> so. He's the guy that buried The Brady Bunch. <laughs> but maybe, maybe it's a thing, though, because you know, it's, like, it's like the Phoenix. He comes into the end of The Brady Bunch, at, ushering in The Brady Bunch's destruction. He comes into the beginning of The Ninja Turtles and thereby launches an impressive film franchise. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the voices for the turtles work uh, work well in this movie. They're different enough from each other that you can tell who's speaking just by listening to it. Um, yeah, they captured a lot of character in the voice. Yeah, uh, and they could have gone really uh, hokey and done the the Michelangelo surfer dude voice, but you know, from the cartoon. But instead, they did a more, uh, I guess, believable uh, kind of street kid voice. You know. Um, so, yeah, I think they did a great job with that. I mean, as far as the Ninja Turtles in this movie, I I do wonder sometimes the way Donatello behaves seems very similar to Michelangelo. Mm -hmm. You don't get as much of Donatello as the science expert in this as, um, I think in some of the later movies, maybe. Well, you know what it is? It's because of the heightened reality of, of the movie, uh, because of, um, you know, 
because this this film is more grounded in reality than the animated series, Donatello can't be a gadgeteer and can't solve problems by rattling off techno babble. And unfortunately, it's not not really until the second film where we really do see start to see Donatello as an intellectual, and that's mainly because they really build up his vocabulary in a lot of fun ways in the second film. Yeah. Yeah, and they actually give him a computer to play with in that one. This one, in, in this film, there are um, there's maybe just one scene where you see Donatello kind of tinkering with something, uh, and that's towards the end of the film when they're uh, when they return to the sewers. Um, but again, it's just something like just a little transistor or something that he's poking around with. Um, and we can also assume that he's the one who pieced together the their TV that they have their uh, broken TV set in their oh, uh, yeah. in their sewer den. But uh, but yeah, uh, I, I I would agree about that. He uh, it's it's not the cartoon Donatello, so he can't really build a trans-dimensional portal using old tin cans and a car battery. Yeah. <laughs> And part of it you could actually write off as being the story because the slice of life of their life that we get to see here is so intense that their normal actions outside of keeping themselves moving and alive and ready to fight Shredder is very minimal. Mm-hmm. And that goes also to the to how closely related the plot is to the first few issues of the comic book. Um, we don't really get a whole lot of their personalities in the original uh, uh, the in the original first I don't know maybe two or three issues of of uh, TMNT. <clears throat> um, yeah, they they're basically just ninja warriors in those in the first in the first issue where they uh, defeat the Shredder. And it is really surprising if you go back uh, to that first issue of the original comic from 1984. So much of that is carried over into this movie. Maybe not the the blood and some of the level of uh, violence, but you have their origin. You have the story of the Shredder. You have the Turtles uh, getting rid of Shredder by throwing him off a building, just like what happens in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very compact story that they use a lot in this film, as well as some of the other uh, early comics. Now, after the beginning, where April gets attacked by the Foot Clan, saved by Raphael, Raphael gets kind of angry, so he leaves to see a movie, and he bumps well, he in. He gets upset because he lost his prize he, weapon. He lost one of his eyes, right, because April hangs on to it. And uh, he goes to see a movie, and he bumps into uh, Casey Jones, who has no, like Casey a, Jones was probably a surprise to a lot of people in the audience, particularly the, the parents, because while he'd been featured heavily in the original comic book, I think he only got like one episode a season on the animated series. So I'm sure that most of the audience wasn't familiar with him at all. Yeah, and I don't think he – he did he did not even appear at all in the, uh, in the Archie series of the comic books. Yeah, I mean, he really just does go back to the core original concept of Ninja Turtles when they were satirizing uh, Frank Miller and things like that. I mean, Casey Jones is in one episode, I think, of the second season of Ninja Turtles, and he sounds like Clint Eastwood, and um, yeah. he's... Dirty Harry. Yeah, Dirty Harry, exactly, and he's a bit 
I think they're fighting possessed refrigerators or something. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's definitely different than how he is in this movie. And in this movie, he is played by uh, Elias Coteus, who has been in several films and TV shows. And uh, I think he does a good job. I, the only thing is, I think he seems a little bit old for the part. But then, like, I don't know, in different versions of the Ninja Turtles, Casey Jones is kind of portrayed as different ages and stuff. But the, the whole conflict between Casey Jones and Raphael is a big, big thing in the comic books. Yeah, and actually, they're <clears throat> the scene where they meet, where they introduce Casey Jones, um, is pretty much panel for panel the uh, Raphael one shot that that introduces uh, Casey Jones in the original comics. Um, it, yeah, there are a few uh, differences, but. Um, basically they do, uh, get into a little fight there in the park and chase each other throughout town. So, um, yeah. Well, I guess we'll uh, touch on who, who Casey Jones is in, in this movie. And, uh, like the Ninja Turtles, he's something of a vigilante. He's just much more brutal and has a fetish for using sporting goods. Yeah. And he gets to be a bit of a romantic interest for April O'Neil later on uh, as well. But You know, uh, actually, what's funny, going back to their ages, yeah, I, I, I think he does look a little old for the part. Um, I believe he was maybe, uh, I don't know, about seven years old. I'm on IMDb now. He was seven years old older than uh, Judith Hogue, who played April O'Neil. And actually, April uh, was... Judith Hogue was only 22 years old in this film, (laughs) which is strange because she looks quite a bit older. Yeah, it might be the hairstyle or... Well, she she also has, like, the gravitas you would expect from an actual journalist. Yeah, that's true. It's nice they keep her in a yellow jacket like what she has in the cartoon. I think that's a nice uh, touch. Yeah. But not the full yellow jumpsuit. Thank goodness. (laughs) Yeah, now that probably would have really dated the film. (laughs) Has anyone ever seen an on-air reporter wearing a jumpsuit of any kind? (laughs) I can only think of once, and it was because the reporter was on a flight deck of an aircraft carrier, and I think he was wearing it for safety reasons. (laughs) She was always gunning for that aircraft carrier flight deck story. <laughs> so the Shredder is introduced in the movie briefly, and they do a good job of not spending too much time with the Shredder until the end. It kind of builds up an air of mystery about him. Because April is continuing these uh, this crime wave across New York City where uh, trucks full of televisions are being stolen and that sort of thing. A lot of robberies. I love it when they steal the television from right in front of the lady when she looks to the side. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a great <laughs> touch. And, and the way Shredder looks in this, it's pretty similar to how he looks in the comics and stuff. I think it's a nice look. They're, they're trying to go for more realistic. The armor looks real menacing. Yeah, I could probably do without the the magenta outfit, sparkly well, magenta. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the tape was a little much. Yeah, and, you know, it's he probably wouldn't be wearing the the tights that he wears in the cartoon <laughs> and uh, in the in the 
movie, you know, Shredder doesn't have, like, Bebop or Rocksteady or Crane as a sidekick. He has uh, Tatsu, who, uh, played by Toshishiro Obata. And uh, Tatsu, again, doesn't get a lot of lines of dialogue, but he looks really menacing. I think it's fine for what it is. Maybe they did not want to uh, have too many complicated uh, costumes and animatronics in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, they're trying to keep it more real and you got... Yeah, you, you could really have a mutant overload if you brought in Rocksteady and Bebop. And, and and to be fair, as much as I like the old animated series, Rocksteady and Bebop were the two most, the two least interesting villains on that show. <laughs> I always liked the Rat King myself. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Rat King actually has great origins in the in the Mirage uh, universe as well. So back to this uh, first Ninja Turtles movie. Da, 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 da. So there's a yeah. crime wave going across. Uh... Well, a- April gets attacked by the the Foot Clan again because she keeps on reporting on their crime wave. And uh, again, Raphael manages to save her, and this time he takes her back to uh, the Ninja Turtles hideout. Sewer lair. No, why does he take her back there? Couldn't he just like leave her unconscious in the subway, or uh, he's just well, trying to protect her? Well, uh, I, I think I think Honor wouldn't let him leave her unconscious in the in, in the subway because you know Lord knows what could happen to her there. But all, also there there is this implied they they imply that there's a uh, that that uh, Raphael has a. Uh, sort of romantic interest in April O'Neil. He's almost, you know, he's, he's a teenager. He's kind of got a crush on for her. And, you know, I, I never even considered that until many years later when I saw it as an adult. Um, and actually I, I still have problems seeing that, but so many people that I've talked to, they say the same thing, you know, they, they're like, so what's that, that thing between, you know, Raphael and, and April, why did she end up with Casey if, you know, she... Well, because Casey's human. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not a teenager. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've... Well, I haven't really read, but I know that there is quite a bit of fan fiction out there. <laughs> oh. Eater, yeah. so. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, I, 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 I agree. I think it was Honor that, uh, that had him just take her maybe even just panicking i mean he he says it in the in the next scene when she's there unconscious on the on the couch he says i don't know why i brought her you know uh, i mean he kind of blows off leonardo's uh comments but i i think he was kind of at a loss of what to do and it's good because it gives something more to the Raphael character in this movie. It's easy because uh, Raphael is the hothead of the bunch. He can come off as a bit of an asshole mm-hmm. uh, sometimes. So it's nice that there's a a character that he kind of cares for or he kind of has this sort of conflict going on. It gives him a little bit more than just him yelling at everyone and going off by himself. Yeah, but now, but now, of course, uh, April is in on the big secret. There are four Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles living beneath New York who have been... Uh, who have uh, been doing what they can to uh, curb the skyrocketing crime rate. And yet they're only told part of the origin. Splinter just says that he was a rat and uh, ran into these turtles and they got into some ooze 
and they all mutated. You don't get the rest of the origin story of, well, I don't know, how does this rat get into the sewer, I guess, until later well, in the I really movie. like the way they did the origins, where it was just the black backdrop with the action. So it wasn't too much detail, and you can really focus on this is what happened. And I have to say that the baby Ninja Turtles are very cute. Yeah, the um, cutest thing ever. <laughs> yeah. Because there's also the explanation of how exactly they know the martial arts. And at one point, when Shredder was, I mean, sorry, when Splinter was still just a normal rat, he was, uh, he was kept in, uh, he was kept as a pet in a dojo and actually observed these great martial arts masters. And, and that sort of, in, in a way, taught himself the martial arts through observation. And yet in the, uh, in the cartoon from the 80s, they had him as a human that got mutated into a rat. Which, uh, and I, I think the, the, major, uh, the major difference there is that the original Mirage storyline is a lot about revenge. And, um, and you know, the, the turtles avenging their master's... Uh, their master's master. Uh, in in the cartoon, it's obviously geared towards children, and uh, that's really not one of the best themes to teach them. Uh, <laughs> so they they kind of eliminated the whole element of of going after the shredder for revenge. Um, instead, well, um... they just want him to reveal the the secrets of the of the mutagen so that they can get their their master back into a human form yeah they in the animated series they they went back to the well of we of let's turn let's turn splinter human many many times yeah uh one plot in the movie that isn't a main focus but they they spend some time on it we haven't talked about is there's a uh, there's a teenage boy that gets part he becomes part of the foot clan and um, through him, you get to see the, the hideout of the Foot Clan, which, uh, as a kid, I thought looked awesome. Like, it's all oh, these, yeah. uh, it's like a huge arcade, all these video games. They can have as many cigarettes as they want. Uh, they're not drinking beer, but they might as well be. Or maybe they are. I don't know. I couldn't tell. But it's just <laughs> like a a warehouse that seems like a, a place any teenage boy would love to spend time in. Yeah, it's actually, I, I think it's referred to as, um, oh, what's it called in, in Pinocchio, where... Uh, oh, the, the, the was the Island of Lost Boys? I, I, yeah, some something like that. I think that's what they actually uh, kind of base it off of, um, which is a, a really good touch. And actually, um, the character of Danny Pennington is pretty pretty genius it's a it's a good way to get our eyes into the the foot clan's uh, headquarters and um also uh april's relationship with her boss you know her her human life you know not living with the turtles and and all that because danny is the son of april's boss yeah so yeah. And of course, he uh, he is the one who's responsible for um, 
revealing their the location of the turtles to the shredder. Um yep. But a little bit before that they uh so the turtles talk about their origins a little bit to April and uh they take April home and then they come back to the the turtle uh hangout in the sewer to find that Splinter has been kidnapped. And uh, this is something they did in the animated series a lot, I think. And it's also in the comics. And uh, it's interesting because you have just spent some time with Splinter and he's very fatherly. He's a very loving character. And having him taken away, um, you feel sad for the Ninja Turtles. And like Raphael in particular is like screaming and you got the camera shaking as he screams. It's a pretty intense moment. Yeah, you really, you, they really get a chance to show some vulnerability in that scene. Mm-hmm. When you see Donatello fall to his knees um, and kind of Leonardo, the unofficial leader, looking very forlorn, like he, like he's failed in some way. It almost seems like Splinter got himself captured on purpose. Like He's one of those characters <laughs> like Yoda where you know he's way cooler than he lets on. Like, <laughs> this is a test. Maybe he let himself get captured on purpose so he could be hoping he'd be captured by one of the Shredder's minions so he could get closer to Shredder. And then he- I, I suppose so, but he once he then stays pretty well captured. <laughs> yeah. He's a ninja. He could have gotten out of there at any time. And, and that's actually one of, probably one of the mistakes that, I mean, it, I guess maybe not a mistake, but uh, something that I wish that they hadn't have done um is make Splinter so frail and elderly. Mm. Um, he, he, uh, I, I don't know, in the original cartoon, he rarely saw any action, but I mean, he was, uh, he was definitely capable. Um, and in the most recent film, he, uh, he was in the middle of the action. Um, and also in the most recent cartoons, but in this one, he's pretty much an old man, just not able to do much. Yeah, he makes he makes funnies, but not much else. Well, yeah. part of it just as amazing as the Splinter puppet is. Part of it could just be the limitations of of the puppet. You know, if if, if they're not going to be able to make the Splinter puppet do an awesome fight scene they're not going to make the character possible of, have, of taking part in, a, in an awesome battle. Yeah. I mean, if if the alternative at the time was to do a cheesy uh, stop-motion animation scene where it just looks like, you know, uh, I don't know, old dinosaurs, <laughs> dinosaurs fighting, uh, then then it's best that he was just, you know, chained up for the majority of the film. I think a lot of that would have depended on who they got to do the animation, you know, what companies they got involved. They got somebody like Artemin or someone, uh, or even like Phil Tippett to get in on it. it. It would have come out a lot nicer than what we think of as stop motion. Yeah, of course. Also, we have to remember that this movie was an independent film. It it was distributed by New Line Cinema, but through um, Golden Harvest, which was their, uh, I guess, their independent film 
distribution. I, I don't know what you would call it, but uh, but yeah, I didn't really have a lot of funding behind it. Well, and Golden Harvest is a Chinese company that has done so many classic movies. Whether you look at the Jet Li Once Upon a Time in China series, or uh, oh yeah, mo- even Enter the Dragon was uh, done, you know, partially through Golden Harvest with uh, Bruce Lee. So, um, or most of the Jackie Chan stuff, even like uh, the Police Story movies. So, and um, the fight choreography was done by people from Hong Kong. So, and I, I, I think love the fight choreography in this movie. I think what's so great is that even you can even believe where the movements seem strange from the turtles because hey, they're turtles; they're not going to move exactly like a human being. Yeah, and um, when I was in high school, I, this must have been like 1999 or something. I, I went to some uh, convention, and one of the people I happened to have lunch with was a guy who. Um, He's like a, a weapon experts for movies. He does consulting with like works with swords and stuff. And he said he worked on the, this uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. And he talks about he talked to me about how it was difficult to figure out how to make these weapons and how to tell these people in the suits to fight with the weapons when you're in these heavy heavy costumes that only have like three fingers. Oh yeah, working with working with just the three fingers, the three digits must have been real challenging. Uh, and you mentioned the action, BJ. I, I think one of my favorite scenes in this movie, as far as action goes, is when the Ninja Turtles go back to April and tell her that Splinter's been captured, and they get attacked by the Foot Clan again. And because everything just kind of goes crazy, you got windows breaking, you got the ceiling falling down, fire and stuff. Pretty chaotic. I love the where they start chopping around with the axes. That's that's brilliant. And the whole floor falls. Like it's it's such great comedy setup that you, you know it's going to happen, and still when it does, it still pays off even though it was so obvious. So Casey Jones comes to help him, and then you got an extended sequence with the uh, Ninja Turtles going to a farm that belonged to April's family, and uh, at the same, you know, during that crazy fight scene, there's a really nice uh, bit where April gets a call from her boss saying that she's uh, fired, and it's sort of intercut with this crazy action. It, it's pretty interesting, I think, how they do that. But what do you think of the extended farm sequence on the film? It's something I like more now that I'm older, but it's very meditative, very peaceful. Tonally, it's very different. These turtles are uh, in a disturbed state of mind. They're trying to get back their focus. It definitely has a, a sense of mourning, like like you'd have after a loss, like losing their you know their father. As they would they would find a place to kind of escape and and gather their thoughts before going and doing what needs to be done. Yeah, this was another scene that was taken from uh, one of the uh, one of the original Mirage comics, and they did a great a great job adapting it for for film i mean it it's a really good way to get the the story moving you know um i mean yeah they they just went into hiding and basically they're just in hiding for a few days and that could have been said as easily as that but they actually show them how how they this is where they show their personalities you know, they show Donatello working on on a on a truck with Casey Jones, and they show um, you know Raphael 
in rehabilitation and Leonardo keeping vigil over him and then the training sequence. So that way they can, uh, I mean, they, they know they are up for a huge challenge when they do have to go back, uh, and fight the foot clan. Uh, unfortunately they left out, um, this, the scene with, uh, Michelangelo, they, they didn't show how he was really dealing with, uh, with the loss. Uh, and in the, in the comic book, they did a great job showing him really mourning the loss of, of Splinter. I think it's also, we, we get, when you were talking about Donatello not being able to show his, you know, gearheadedness, and I think you get the scene of him and Casey working on the, on the truck, and you, you get some of the, the techno feel of him there, where he's you know, trying a to bit, get this uh, ancient thing going again. Uh, so actually, you know, no, something just occurred to me. Um, that's a sizable farm that April inherited from her family. How did she? How does she afford the uh, property taxes on that? <laughs> Probably by selling stuff in the antique shop. <laughs> <laughs> And she probably was paid pretty well as a news reporter to begin with, uh, since she you know, seems to be of some competence. That's the one thing that dates this movie. There's a news reporter who's paid well. <laughs> well, if she is in New York City, you would get paid more than, uh, I don't know, Detroit. <laughs> but Well, you also have to realize, she, um, if she inherited this brand, or this farm... And it was in, it, and actually, the farm is supposed to be in Massachusetts. Um, it's in supposed to be in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is the actual birthplace of the Ninja Turtles. Um, she probably comes from a family with money, especially if they had property in Massachusetts and in um, and in New York City. Uh, That's true. She could have access to a trust. Yeah. And, I, and I'm betting that's what she did. <laughs> um, of course, in, in the comic book, it wasn't April's, uh, April's farm. It was actually Casey's farm. Uh, so that's one difference there. I mean, it's also interesting visually, because most of the movie is in New York City, in the big city, underground in sewers or in warehouses. And at night. And at night, right. So getting to see the sunlight and a farm and some fields and... Uh, yeah, the turtles are in direct natural lighting, and you really get a chance to see how good those costumes are. Yeah, they they still they don't look fake at all, you know. And that's being lit by natural light. That's really amazing. I'm really impressed uh, watching this movie again, looking at how good the work is on the eyes in the film, on the Ninja Turtle costume. How mm-hmm. the eyes move around and blink and everything. It's very. Gives them a lot. That just shows the craft of, of Jim Henson's creature shop yep. at the time. Yep. They're just they are they are and still are the best at that stuff. So the Ninja Turtles they all meditate together and they see Splinter. Yes. And they have to return to the Foot Clan warehouse to confront Shredder. And of course, rescue their master. And run into Sam Rockwell as a thug. Yeah. Who doesn't have much dialogue. And he wasn't very old at the time. Incidentally, he was also 22, the same age as as Judith Hogue. Ah, (laughs) There we go. 
it's pretty funny to see him as a teenage thug and her as a up-and-coming uh, broadcast journalist. Yeah, and speaking of that, I mean, 22 seems awfully young to be a broadcast journalist, but... Well, we, they never she state her age in the No, film, no, no, that's I, true. I, I always figured she was someone in her late 20s, early 30s. Yep. So you get a lot of really intense action at this uh, final part of the movie. And you also get a scene where Splinter is talking to uh, to Danny, the son of April's boss, and he reveals the origin of um, his master, Hamato Yoshi, getting murdered by Oroku Saki. And uh, Oroku Saki becomes the Shredder. And yeah. so he's trying to tell him that the Shredder you're working for is a bad man. Even though, I mean... A man he that will wears... betray you just as assuredly as he betrayed my master. But if you're working for a man that wears a bunch of like metal claws and covers up his face all the time, I, I think you can expect he'd be a bad person. I don't know. Maybe that's yeah. an unfair judgment. But and also well, maybe, maybe you know... he just likes to wear his Renfair gear all the time. <laughs> you know, I, I think I would probably wait to uh, throw away my little, you know, red dragon bandana you know I wouldn't throw it away right there in front of everybody else who's (laughs) part of the foot clan yeah that's a good point because you're kind of trapped in there you can't really escape yeah so um any thoughts about the final showdown between Shredder and the Ninja Turtles I think it's really well done you know each turtle gets a chance one on one to try and go against them before getting beat the shit out of, basically. Well, you know, it's... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying, we've talked about the choreography, but you can tell that this is choreographed by some actual Hong Kong fight choreographers. It is just such such awesome physicality. You can tell that the the, the action and the violence they're engaging in has real consequences, and that there's weight behind every kick and punch. Mm -hmm. And I, I was... I was just going to say, I wish there were there was more of it, you know, because that's really the the main showdown, and we really want to see more action at that point. But uh, but yeah, it, it's it's great action. It's it's amazing. And uh, the end. Do you think Splinter let Shredder die on purpose, or do you think it's an accident? I. You know, I mean, it appears that he falls to his death. Let me just put it that way. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think he intended him to just get hurt and, and wallow away. Well, it's let's just describe that, what happens. The switch. Let's describe that's... what happens exactly. Well, let's see. Um, uh, Shredder and Splinter are facing off, and uh, Splinter doesn't appear to have any weapons or anything on him. And he, and, uh, he, explains Shredder to Shredder, him he explains to Shredder who he is and that Shredder killed his master. I still don't get... I don't think... At least Splinter in this... You know, I never read the comics, but in this, I don't get Splinter as that horrible, vengeful person that would kill him on, re- on just because. Uh, I think that if he, you know, since if he killed him, it was more of defense. Like, I've got to defend my sons here. Yeah, so, I, and I think... I think Splinter knew exactly what was going to happen. I knew... I, I think he knew that... that that Shredder was going to choose vengeance of his own. And and so while Shredder chose vengeance, Splinter chose defense. And that caused 
Shredder's downfall. And, and Splinter does give Shredder a chance. Shredder didn't have to throw that knife at Splinter. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, I mean, you could have had a really vicious scene of uh, Splinter, you know, clawing at Shredder's face, chewing pieces <laughs> off. But that's uh... wearing his face like a mask. <laughs> That'd be ridiculous, but no, yeah. Hopefully he can flip around. And so this movie ends with a, a way how they end these first three Ninja Turtles movies, where Splinter tries to make a joke and says, I made a funny, ha ha ha. He says, Kawabunga. Yeah, which isn't really funny, uh, but he yeah, thinks it is. That's not really a joke. No. <laughs> It's a catchphrase, ah ha ha. But uh, it might be a smarter joke than maybe we're giving it credit, because a lot of episodes of that cartoon ended with him saying "cowabunga," or "Yeah, let's yeah. eat pizza," yeah. or "Yeah, they really time. didn't use any slang throughout this movie. They spoke very normally, and so like <laughs> Splinter, Splinter saying "cowabunga" at the end is not only out of character for him, but it's out of character for the film. And I think yeah. that. That it's jarring enough that it elicits uh, responsive laughter. I think yeah. there's only one scene with them uh, doing that, and that's when they come back from their first encounter with uh, Saving April. Yeah, they're kind of throwing all... different words out there. And there is a scene earlier uh, where they eat pizza, and so the stuff about them liking pizza, like that's the same. But it's they not you eat pizza. But I mean, pizza doesn't dominate every single moment of their lives as it's. <laughs> As it seems to in the eighties uh, series. So yeah, they they had a dietary problem. <laughs> but you know, uh, I, I like the, the the product placement for for Pepsi and for Domino's was rather subtle compared to some <laughs> movies that that put product placements in. Oh lord, yeah. It was uh, it, another side note is that the uh, the actor who was in uh, the Michelangelo suit was also the pizza man, um, the the Domino's pizza delivery guy. He actually comes out in the second one too as a as like some rich neighbor of April's. But huh. yeah, uh, but what I was gonna say about the about the joke is uh, the cowabunga, cowabunga joke is that um, at when I saw this in the theaters, I remember laughing hysterically. Of course, I was 10 years old and, you know, I, I guess to me it was like, hey, yeah, they do say that in the cartoon. And, you know, it was like, yeah, that's a great way to end it. And, you know, I watch it nowadays and I'm like, you know, maybe that wasn't really funny. It doesn't really make a joke. But I, I remember laughing so hard at that. Hmm. Strange. But yeah, it, does, it, does, it does get you a nice little stinger before the credits roll and you know, a nice a nice point to book to book in the film oh god and I, I love the credits all right just the, like you the music the ghostbusters episode oh every eight <laughs> relatively 80s movie has to have a rap that tells you the movie yeah <laughs> yeah oh I, yeah yeah whenever i watch this movie i i'll be singing t u r t l e power for Days performed by uh, partners in crime. Yeah, I like that. There's a song on the soundtrack called "Turtle Rhapsody" by Orchestra on the Half Shell. We've got to find that. <laughs> I do. Uh, 
you know, the score in this movie, and indeed the pers- the composer for the first three live-action Ninja Turtles movies, was uh, John Duprez. And I think, actually, the, the music works well. They don't outright use music of the uh, theme song of the cartoon or anything like that. Thank goodness. But it it fits with the movie. It's not... Mm-hmm. It's not offensive. I mean, had it been, like, classical music or something, that might have seemed weird or... It doesn't and, sound overly 80s, I guess. I don't know. It just fits. It, it's bouncy. It's we yeah. do, John DePrez also co-wrote the uh, music for Spamalot, the uh, Eric Idle Monty Python musical. Huh. What were you going to say, Mikey? Oh, um, I was just going to say, yeah, the 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 music doesn't seem as um, as I guess 80s ish as it as it could have. I mean, there are a couple of scenes, um, mostly the fight scenes, where they put a lot of synthesized music in there. Um, but you know, it's not—it's not obnoxious. You know, it's—it's uh, it's not as bad as, like, let's say, Lady Hawk, for instance. Now, <laughs> Lady Hawk was a period piece, <laughs> uh, supposedly, but it had, you know, this awesome. 80s, awesomely bad 80s synthesized score. Um, but yeah, it, it it just goes well with the film. I could have been just like, like in, when we were talking about uh, Karate Kid Part 3 with their, God, with all the terrible, like, we have to make sure people know this is in the 80s stuff. <laughs> Which it seems like the next movie actually seems like it was more 85 than the first movie. Yeah, the... Um, Even though they're all were made in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, the, the second film, it just looks really dated today because of the... Not, not so much the fashions, but, like, the interior design, decorating, like, April's apartment looks horrid. Um... It's like this ugly early '90s apartment in New York. It's just so, you know, it has no personality. But in this film, all of the sets are, you know, the, it's like old gritty New York. Uh, you know, you've got dirty subway tiles. You've got um, crown molding in in an apartment. You know. Uh, wood floors that that echo when you walk on them, and you know there's there's all of that attention to detail that just makes it seem more like they're living in that time period rather than the movie was made in that time period. Yeah, I think all in all, the production design of the of this film is top notch, especially for some, especially for a, you know, an independent film and for something. Really aimed at kids. Yep. Uh, before we wrap things up, I want to ask everyone a very personal question. What's your favorite uh, pizza toppings? Oh, goodness. I thought it was going to be about that other thing. Nope. Uh, Thrasher, favorite <laughs> oh, pizza okay. topping. Um. All right. Well, for me, I just saw the individual toppings or, ty- or like if we were making our dream pizza. If you could have your dream pizza, what would be on it? Okay, Dream Pizza would have uh, Canadian bacon, uh, barbecue chicken, garlic, 
uh, lots of, of extra garlic. Um, let me see, buttered garlic preferably. Um, sausage, mushrooms, olives, green peppers, not too many green peppers. That's but a lot of toppings. There. <laughs> and to top it all off, boom, 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 pineapple. Big old chunks of pineapple. Uh, BJ. I have to go with the classic. I like a good pepperoni pizza, but I I actually had it from a restaurant here where they actually make it in the brick oven with these real sliced mozzarella Ooh. to die for. I bet. Uh, Mikey. Uh, same thing. I, I, I love a classic margarita pizza with uh, just uh, thin slices of pepperoni on it and you know a nice thin crust that's um, still got a little bit of fluff to it. Uh, and I, I once heard from uh, an Italian um, pizza maker that, who said that if you just pile on all the toppings, then you don't get to taste the pizza. Hmm. So, yeah. Uh, so I just like mine simple. As for me, I like uh, I really like anchovies as a pizza topping. I avoided anchovies for years because on the Ninja Turtles. They were like, oh, anchovies, that's gross. No, but, uh, that wasn't just the Ninja Turtles. That's from reality. But I happen yeah. to like anchovies. No, sure, that's true. And anchovies, if you've never had them, they're extremely salty and, and very fishy tasting. But I'm a kind of person that likes sushi. I, I like the taste of, uh, of fish for the most part. So my dream pizza would have anchovies, uh, bacon, and olives, I think. So... The wow. pizza nobody would want to eat except me, I think. But, uh... Yeah. <laughs> capers in there, and then no one will touch it. Oh, I'd well, join you for that pizza. I do like capers. Hmm. Uh, so before we give our final thoughts on the movie, I want to do a shout-out. Uh, our website is SequelCast.com. If you look for us on Facebook, um, you know we have a page. If you just search for SequelCast, we're on there. And we've had some good conversations from fans on the site. We had some postings from uh, Angel, or Angel, I'm not sure how he pronounces it. And he actually did the review for us on uh, iTunes. He's recommending we do things like RoboCop. We had some comments from uh, other fans like Andrew and uh, Mladen. I think that's how you pronounce that. Talking about Jurassic Park and covering uh, Aliens movies. So those are all really good suggestions. And if you want to comment on the show, that's a good place to do it as any. Um, So... What are final thoughts that we have on this uh, original live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie? I, I well, think I would say that this is probably the best of, of the entire franchise. There's a lot of character and a lot of um, just top-notch production. I think it's a good blend of action and character. It has a lot of uh, a lot of heart to it with the characters. You, you feel for some of them. It's uh, Thrasher? Well... This is a really good, really fun movie. There's one scene that always sticks with me, though, that that I made me crack up, made my brother crack up, and we saw it in the movie, and that even my, my mom thought was hilarious. And we would sometimes, for like the year after this movie came out, would call back to it. When they order that pizza and the guy's delivering it, it's like his address, it's like, like seven and a half East 42nd Street or something like that. And he's looking for the address, and then he just hears from the sewer grate, we're, we're down here! 
<laughs> they want him to slide the pizza through the sewer grate, and they're, like, sticking the money through the sewer grate, and, like, Raphael tries to pull the $20 back, but the guy, <laughs> the guy grabs it. Uh, the guy's able to grab it and snatch it out. I wonder how many pizzas he tried to steal, and if that's the one ninja trick he never learned, how to pull money back when someone's reaching for it. Uh, BJ? I have to say, I, I recommend this movie to a lot of people, especially if you saw it when you were younger. It's definitely better to go see it again. Uh, now, Especially now that I've grown, I appreciate it more than when I did as a kid. As a kid, I much preferred the other two, you know, that were, that were a lot sillier. And and now I, I realize this is definitely the, the one for adults to see with their kids. Yeah, it's one of those movies that, um, you know, that holds up. A lot of movies that you might have enjoyed when you were younger, you watch them now and they come across as ridiculous or, like, stupid. I don't know. But uh, this first uh, Ninja Turtles movie holds up. It's a, it's a fine film. Uh Mikey, thanks for coming on the sequel cast. Thank you for having me. You can visit uh, his website, Mikey's TMT, at Mikey'sTMT.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-S-T-M-N-T. Oh, sorry, TMNT.com. That's uh, M-I-K-E-Y-S-T-M-N-T.com. Uh, do you have any uh, Ninja Turtles news you want to talk about? Um, I just want to say uh, keep an eye on uh, the uh, upcoming Nickelodeon cartoon. Uh, it's going to be pretty awesome, I think. Uh, it's going to be all uh, CG uh, animation. And, you know, if you love the Turtles, I'm sure you're going to love this. Um, there's no news about what kind of tone the new animated series is going for yet? Uh, not yet, okay. but um, I, I'm betting it's going to be not as slapstick as uh, as people would think from like the original original cartoons probably it, it might be somewhere in between the original cartoons and the and the last you know the more recent ones that were on um but but really there's there's not much to know just yet you know i tried to watch some of the old cartoon the other day and i just couldn't sit through it yeah it, it's kind of difficult nowadays <laughs> it is uh you might enjoy watching some of the uh the series that started in 2003, that's a bit more... Um, I did enjoy uh, the, what I've seen of that. i, I got to try to dig up some more of it. Is that all on the, like a DVD collection yet? I'm not sure if they have the last season of that out yet. Um, but I think... it, it gets a little confusing with the DVDs because for a while they were releasing just you know DVDs with three or four episodes that weren't even in, in chronological order. Um, but I, I think they do have several uh, collections out now. I'd love to be able to pick that stuff up like they did with the, the real Ghostbusters when they had the whole series as like a big collection. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure if they have all the seasons of the uh, 80s and 90s and Ninja Turtles show out yet. They I have, don't believe there's a definitive collection, though. They have like at least seven seasons of that around on DVD, and there's ten seasons of that one. Um Look. So, um, but yeah, thanks again, Mikey, for doing the show. Yeah, no problem. Sure. It's great Uh, having you. Thanks. Absolutely. Uh, So this is Uncle Milkshake. Thrasher. BJ. Mikey, say your name. Oh, and me, Mikey. (laughs) (laughs) Saying, oh, what are we going to say? Cowabunga! I made another buddy. 
Uh, let's do that again and try and say Kawabunga at the same time. Okay. <laughs> uh, so this is Uncle Milkshake. Rasher. BJ. And Mikey. Same. Kawabunga. <laughs> We're going to get that sync right one of these times. Yep. Okay, thanks. Have a good uh, evening, fellas. Well, thank you. Thank you all. Yep. Thanks, guys. Sure. Bye. Bye. The sequel cast airs Wednesdays, 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific Time on Cascadia.fm online. Internet streaming radio. You can also download episodes of the sequel cast from www.sequelcast.com.